Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On today's episode, I speak to Winston Marshall. Winston is an English musician and probably known to most listeners as the co-founder, banjo player and songwriter in the band Mumford & Sons. I talked to Winston about his career as a musician and how it ended as he became involved in politics. I talked to him about how he feels about the criticism that he got on Twitter and other social media and having to leave Mumford & Sons. I also talked to him about his new podcast, Marshall Matters, and his new musical projects. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Winston Marshall. Thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for coming to ASU. I hope you have uh, a great visit here. Henry, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's great to be back in Arizona. You mentioned you'd been here in Arizona before. Did you ever come to the university, or did you just sort of... I don't think so, but certainly played a lot of shows here in Tempe, in Phoenix, from venues... I forget the names, annoyingly. I should have looked this up before, but the first show here would have been in 2009, probably. Uh-huh. And I think it would have been about 100 people. Wow. And I have a vague memory of, of the band leaving for a moment and I decided to get on the drums because I, I was never allowed on the drums because I'm, <laughs> I'm not good at the drums. <laughs> but drums are really fun. Yeah. So uh, I have a weird memory of playing drums alone on stage in a tiny sort of dive bar here. But it's so beautiful to just drive here and just the sight of the desert. It's it's like a it's a fantasy for, compared to the world I come from in London. So yeah, it really is a completely unique landscape. And when you go away, you realize how unique it is because everything else looks so different. Sure do. I hope you don't mind me starting with a kind of a direct question from your past, which is Please. why did you decide to play the banjo? Well, that's a very good question. I was actually a guitar player, but guitar players are ten a penny. And it turns out in London, when I started playing banjo in 2004, 2005, uh-huh. very few banjo players, perhaps no other banjo players. So the job opportunities were fantastic. Or rather, I should say, there was no job competition, uh-huh. which means that you don't lose your job. And um, so I managed to work my way into several bands playing the pubs of the circuits of London and around the UK without having to be particularly good. (laughs) (laughs) But I also, you know, joking aside, I I actually love the banjo. And in 2001, I think, the film A Brother Were Out Thou came out, uh, a Coen Brothers film, and and a soundtrack done by T-Bone Burnett. Just beautiful record, a collection of American hillbilly mountain music, blues, country, with stellar singers and and, uh, all-star cast, really. That was the first introduction for me to that American rootsy, old-time sound. Then there was a few artists along the way. I remember Alison Krauss had a record called New Favourite, which included banjo player Ron Blanc and Dobra player Jerry Douglas. And... and I remember that having a big Im- impact on me and then just through the years it's slowly coming at me so really kind of through Hollywood it came to me I, I'm really a city boy you know I'm from London 
I wasn't surrounded by even musicians, really, certainly not the folk sound. And then in my school, we started, I was originally in a rock band, but then when I discovered this kind of music, I put together a bluegrass band. Uh, we were called Captain Kick and the Cowboy Ramblers, nine-piece kind of country rap crap. And we had a, we found this American sleaze rapper in a bar once. So that we, although we originally kind of bluegrass country, this guy came in and just changed it to a, being a whole new thing <laughs> and got us a tour of the UK. And through that band, we met lots of other artists and we played a show with a sensationally good English songwriter called Laura Marling, who... I believe earnestly will be remembered as the Joni Mitchell of our generation. So I asked him how he became this man. How did he learn to hold fruit in his hands? And where is the lamb that gave you your name? So I started playing with her and other similar folk artists, and then eventually that turned into. Or one of the bands I ended up in was Mumford and Sons, which was similar, like-minded musicians who liked the same music. Singer at the time, Marcus, had a few songs, so brought us in to accompany him. And it wasn't long before we were all contributing songs. We were all songwriters, and we all loved touring. That sort of took off, and, and we all put our heads down and just toured our bums off. It started with the UK and grew and grew and, and actually it wasn't long before we were touring this wonderful country in the States in 2008 was our first US tour. We made it to your beautiful country of New Zealand several uh -huh. times, played Auckland, Wellington, we went down. What's the? What's this? Is it Christchurch? Christchurch is in the South Island. That's. Yeah. I want to ask you something about this because when I think of early two thousands British music, and I was living in Berlin actually as a master's student from around two thousand five till two thousand and eight, which is around this period actually. It seems that you were getting into this sort of more American roots music. I think of these. I think it was called the new Britpop wave or whatever people called it, right? Like the Arctic Monkeys and Franz Ferdinand and very kind of stripped down rock music. So you were doing something that was kind of off trend, shall we say, with this country or bluegrass kind of feel. Is, is that accurate? There was definitely a movement. At the, I say a movement, maybe gives it more credit than it's due. But there was a feeling where a lot of us we're enjoying playing acoustic traditional instruments unplugged un not electric specifically so banjos mandolins violins double basses acoustic guitars pianos obviously and all the the you know wacky things in between like harmonicas and kazoos and, and it's not to say we weren't playing electric instruments and it's not to say we didn't also love bands like the arctics and franz Ferdinand and massively respect them and um, i guess where the bands like those and ours are linked is that it's all about the song the song primarily and actually even though we love those instruments and i've already in this interview emphasized those instruments we were all focused on songwriting and it was how do we best complement the songs what instruments best suit those songs but yeah it did feel fresh and i think we were excited about it particularly because we felt like we discovered our own 
little world of music. What was it like your first tour of the US or your first few tours bringing what really is kind of an American genre of music to America? Was it kind of nerve-wracking to play in front of American audiences? Uh, Absolutely. I remember once playing Telluride Bluegrass Festival in Colorado and being absolutely terrified because all these kids, right, they they have these instruments. They bought. They come out of the mother's womb, <laughs> holding a violin. So they have all these licks, without even thinking. Whereas I didn't pick up the banjo until I was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. If I can't remember exactly, and I didn't know these chops. And I remember at Telluride being very nervous and meeting Jerry Douglas for the first time, the Dobro player, and he took me aside at one point. He goes, Winston, the great thing about you is you have no. F- idea what you're doing <laughs> but and so even though he's joking so there's truth to that and it was actually an asset that i didn't have the same licks and i didn't have the same melodies as all the other kids and i didn't have training in the classical bluegrass sense because i wouldn't do the obvious things right. necessarily because i didn't know what i was doing you did something different i did something different accidentally There is, of course, a great tradition of British bands coming to America and doing American music and totally having huge success. I mean, the Beatles would be the the most obvious instance that jumps out, right? They took American rock and roll that they had played to German audiences, of all things, right, in Hamburg. And then they became massively successful with it in Britain and brought it to America and were successful here too. So mm-hmm. it seems to me like you were following in the footsteps of some some pretty important bands in the past. Yeah, well, there's and the Stones and Zeppelin, mm-hmm. and there's a, a lot of bands like that. And, and I'm quite proud and patriotic about the the British uh, influence on pop music. But America seems to seems to be very good to us as a country and 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 like our stuff almost to a remarkable degree, right? The, the, how welcoming they are of these. British interpretations of American music and that they take them seriously and mm. that they become amazingly popular. I'm yep. actually going to see Elton John Are on you? Friday night. He also, I think, made it first in America. I mean, the Beatles didn't make it first in America, but he also played a very American kind of style of music in a way. And he, I, I, I think I remember reading an interview or something with him where he said that he wasn't really taken seriously in England until he became successful in the United States. This interplay between Britain and the US and pop and rock music to me is actually one of maybe most important transnational cultural movements in, of the 20th century and now 21st century. And we love, I mean, the, Amer- the British charts are filled with American artists as well. So it, it really is a, a back and forth and certainly worked very well for us. You describe coming out here to Phoenix, playing little clubs to like 100 people or whatever. When did things really take off, start taking off for Mumford & Sons? When did you know that something special was happening and that you weren't just going to be playing to 100 people? You were going to be playing to, I mentioned, I saw you at the O2 Arena in 2015-16, and that was probably, I don't know, what, 20, 30, 40,000 people? Uh, 20,000, yeah. In some ways, it happened slowly over time. And if you look at 
the size increase of venues, it was steady. And each time we came back, they're slightly bigger. But that became exponential. And that there are also definite moments where our music went to big audiences. And one of those was playing David Letterman's show. That definitely felt like a market. That, and I think we played a song called Little Lion Man. And that song definitely did a, a lot for our band. And getting onto the radio in this country is a mm. big thing. Americans, they like to listen to their music when they're driving. Mm-hmm. And so there are periods like that which we really f- we felt the influence. So it was a combination of great moments like that, but also gradual increase. And also playing the Grammys. And we played the Grammys, I think, in 2000. We've played a few times, but there was one show with, which we did with Bob Dylan and the Avett Brothers, and we did a collaboration between the, the three of us, and that, I think, also catapulted us to another, another level. What's your favourite memory, or what are your favourite few memories of the month and sun years? Oh, I've got, I've got many. I always loved touring America, and uh, the collaborations were great, playing with with Dylan was exceptional what so- you said you played with him so you were on stage with Dylan what song did you play together? we did a collaboration where we did it was a Mumford song called The Cave and then his song Maggie's Farm and it, they were going to roll into each other and there was a, the Avits as well but I forgot what, which Avits song it was but so we did a few days of rehearsals in Los Angeles oh, that's what I wanted to ask yeah. About, yeah. And, and he was late to attend and everyone was nervous and it was a room full of crew and people preparing so a little bit noisy but of course then when Bob walks into the room silence falls everyone gets very nervous you know this is the king of American music really in a, in a way and he's I think, wearing a little hoodie and it's very modest and, and chill and we did a few days of rehearsal and not huge interactions with him to be honest but then when it comes to doing the Grammys themselves and there's all of this production, people running around and crew moving monitors and cameras never ending really until we're rolling. And just at the last minute, we'd just done a little sound check. I get a tap on my shoulder and I look around and it's it's Dylan. This guy, he goes, hey, uh, you and the guitar player, come over here. <laughs> and I go, All right, Marcus, come. He's, he wants us, he wants us. <laughs> so we go behind the curtain and he goes, right, play that song in. So I started picking the banjo, playing the cave, and Marcus started playing the guitar. And he goes, and he starts singing Maggie's Farm on top of the chords. It's completely, it's, it doesn't work. And we're like, what? No, we can't. So you're playing your song, but he's singing his he's song over top, your yeah, chords. Yeah, exactly. And, and we're, we're thinking, like, we can't change now. We've done all these rehearsals. And he was there for the rehearsals. He was right? there for the rehearsals, but he's decided, to, oh, he wanted to change it all up. And I just thought, oh, no. and we were all pretty nervous as well. We were kids. Well, we weren't we were quite kids, but we were new to the game. So all these cameras around us, we're not used to that kind of stuff at all. We, we were a, a pub band, really. And then his MD, whose name I've forgotten, was like, no, Bob, we're not doing this. Like, But what the... And so it didn't actually happen. We went to the original rehearsal thing. But what what I'd learned from that about Dylan was that his creative mind and his his desire to completely, re, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct, that that's a sign of a man whose brain's synapses are constantly firing. It's It should be expected from a man as prolific throughout his entire career right because you can see his his catalogue of work and you say at certain periods he he had exceptional 
output of songs. Right, and there songs. are phases and periods, right? There are great phases, but very, very few artists can claim to have that many I agree. phases. He's in one now, I would argue. I mean, I, I think haven't his, heard his recent stuff. What's I think his on? newest album is absolutely fantastic, mm. Rough and Rowdy Ways. My wife and I went on a long road trip last summer through the West. You know, it was still kind of pandemic time, so you couldn't really go that many places. And so we took this long road trip and we must have listened to the album on the car stereo, I don't know, 25 times or something. I'm first among equals. Second and none, the last of the best. You can bury the rest, bury them naked with that silver and gold. Put up six feet under, and I pray for their soul. I wanted to ask you about the politicization of pop music mm-hmm. because it does seem to me that we'll get into this in a, in a minute that through this episode with this tweet that you kind of were dragged into political debates whether you wanted to be or not. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask you a little bit then about the kind of environment among musicians and pop musicians and rock musicians in the 2010s, I guess, or the, the first couple of decades of the 21st century when you were really active and even at the most elite levels in the United States, was music politicized in this time when you were on tour? You know, you met Dylan, yeah, you met all these other famous acts. Is it, were they political people? Well, it's a good question. I think some artists are political, and we met some of those artists. But for us, and this is the the best example I can give of the diff, the, the way the climate changed with music and politics, is that we put a record out in 2015 called Wilder Mind. And when we were doing the press junkets and promo for that record, no one ever asked us about politics. And then we put a record out in 2018, Delta. And it was as if no one asked us about music. They only wanted to talk about politics. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. Of course, they asked about the music a bit. But I can't really... It was I'm pretty sure every conversation would have had at least one question about politics. Wow. And politics was completely irrelevant to our music. I don't think... When we had some songs... It's really their love songs and... There's a couple of songs which talk about, I don't know, society a little bit, but not explicitly. And um, so it wasn't relevant to ask us about about that. Now, an observation about the politics is that I think that almost all artists are somehow political, whether they want to be or not. Some of them are very happy to tour politics, but also if you're touring the world, you inevitably cross picket lines. And so you get dragged into it and you sometimes not saying anything is deemed political by some people now what my experience has been is that no one even noticed you are political unless you deviate from progressive orthodoxy Mm. there are plenty of artists who will say stuff like trump or you know talk about abortion or gun rights people don't even notice it because it's so expected of artists but then if anyone comes out and says, I love Trump, for example, there's like, then they're the political one. I think of John Lydon, the lead singer of the Sex Pistols, and he's caught, there's a photograph of him in a MAGA hat and MAGA shirt. So when people come out, I think of Nick Cave, mm-hmm. wonderful artist who has a beautiful blog, and he, in his blog, I think he's the only other music artist to have criticized Antifa like, like in any way similar to how I've criticized them. Interesting. Similar to me, criticized the far right. 
but gets pushback before criticizing the far left. So when you noticed this transition, when you started getting asked these political questions on press dates for your music, how did you feel about that and the band? How did you react? Were you prepared? Were you surprised? Were you blindsided? How did you react? I think it happened quite gradually. So or maybe as a band, we weren't necessarily consistent in how we were going to deal with it. It's certainly inside my, the burning point was like, how is this relevant? And maybe I should have just said that. Why, how is this relevant to the music? Particularly in that period when politics was so divisive. You know, there's plenty of times where it's okay to have different opinions, but over the last five years, it's not been okay to have different opinions. Were you, before this, a particularly political person? Did you read a lot of political history or biography or political philosophy or theory or anything like that? Is that something you you were interested in much? I think in in earnest, my political awakening happened around 2015. So as a kid, I was brought up in a political family. My father ran for the Liberal Democrat Party in the UK, which is essentially a centrist Mm -hmm. party. And so I would go canvassing with him around the the part of London that Uh I'm from. He didn't actually get win the election but his was a supporter of them and and I as I was and my family is filled with journalists and writers so it's not very normal to talk right. politics where I'm from but my in earnest my political awakening happened in 2015 around the time of the Bataclan bombing and the Manchester Arena bombing I think before then I would have probably been pretty progressive without really even realizing I was progressive And that awakened me because the way we were talking about Islam, it didn't add up for me anymore. Particularly in the music industry and progressive circles, Islam was a topic where the way to deal with it is love, not hate, man, and and peace signs, V signs. And because the Manchester attack and the Bataclan attack, I hadn't played the Bataclan, but I played the Manchester Arena several times. That was the door, my doorstep. It felt, it felt personal to me. So I got really deep into Islam, really researching it, and the Quran, the Hadith, and all the scholars around it. And through that, then came back at my own, understanding my own civilization, and um, came back at understanding Western philosophy and, and exploring Western philosophy, and through that. But, and politics is kind of a surface level after that, I think it's it's not politics isn't my interest as much as that deeper stuff. So tell me about this incident on Twitter, because I believe that your rupture with Mumford and Sons and your eventual resignation from the band started with a, a tweet criticizing the Antifa movement as it's known. Tell me briefly what, what happened. Absolutely. So through the pandemic, I was tweeting about books I'd been reading, which ranged from uh, Russian greats. So I was tweeting about such books like that to Mao's Little Red Book. And one of the books I tweeted about was Andy Noe's book Unmasked. Andy Noe's a conservative American journalist covering far-left extremism. He covered the BLM riots and the 19 deaths in the first 14 days of the riots and the various businesses that were destroyed by the riots and the looting, etc. And I didn't have very many Twitter followers, maybe 3,000, 3,500. But it completely blew up. Before I knew it, it was a segment on all the biggest news shows 
in America and Britain, in the papers, one, the number one trending thing. It, it felt like an act of God. I, I couldn't quite understand how it happened. And, and then, to be honest, initially, I was like, so what? It'll just pass. Like, But this is when people talk about Twitter becoming... It's, you know, it's not real life until it is real life. And, and when it is real life is when you start getting the phone calls and then people you love and friends calling up, calling up distraught, worried, and then things start to unravel. And so I was open to not knowing everything about the topic. It turns out that far-left extremism, in America particularly, is one of those totemic issues like the trans issue is or Israel-Palestine it's a, t- a topic that is angers people and, and is divisive. And I should have known that. And however, I don't think anyone could have predicted what could have happened. So I had dr- accidentally dragged my band into this divisive issue. And I was prepared to have being wrong about the issue. So I issued an apology. And the apology... Because the initial tweet, I said something like congratulations Andy no he just released the book finally read your book you're a brave guy and I thought he'd been a brave guy because I know he'd been attacked covering this in Oregon and across states so I issued the apology in the assumption that okay I didn't or thinking oh maybe I don't know everything here and then I spent the next period of time next few months really looking into it and everything about it and the more I looked into it the more I researched the more I saw that what was being said about the author and the topic were lies, the the negative things. And that was compounded by the fact that I was being told that, or rather, it was being written about me that I was, say, a Nazi. Which, by the way, is ludicrous anyway, but doubly ludicrous because a quarter of my family were wiped out in the concentration camps by the Nazis. But okay, we'll, but we'll ignore, ignore that. But that just how, shows how ludicrous the, the whole thing is. So there are a lot of personal attacks against you, oh, yeah. not just on social media, but also news websites. Yeah, or, and, it right. con- and it continues to happen now, actually. Huh. A lot of rag papers, there's a rag paper called Vulture, I think it's associated with the New Yorker, calling me stream right or alt-right, far-right, just totally libelous besmirchment and they carry on because they're just stuck in their one world outlet and and that and that's that's kind of the state of the world at the moment unfortunately i after the period of time realized that okay i I wasn't wrong he is a brave guy he was then attacked again video footage of him being attacked in portland in a hotel came out and you can find that online and that really really affected my uh, conscience so at that point I'd stopped sleeping not eating very well because I had this apology and and it felt to me like this apology was going to haunt me for the rest of my life so it wasn't the attacks that were troubling you so much it was the apology you had issued well there's two uh, things without yeah. without having duly considered the issue or the, the there's full the attacks. picture what bothered me about the tax isn't the attacks it was the fact that the truth wasn't out there I still get some press saying so-and-so, whatever, because if people really want to know the truth, they can actually find out the truth. It's out there. And so, but at that time, it wasn't. My social media was swiped. There was nothing about me out there. So people could only see the negative stuff. I think the, the, the best way to respond to people talking shit is to actually just be yourself. Because I think now in this day and age, people do their own research. People don't trust the media. People go and find out for themselves. 
I've lent into that now. Actually, the irony is that I've now work at the Spectator, the oldest political magazine, certainly in Britain, perhaps in the world. I think in the world, yeah, two hundred years old, and I've got a podcast there, and and. So there's lots of me. And you, if you want to know what I think, listen to what I think. I'm very open about it. So anyway, back to the story. I, I was in that period. There's actually, go back to Russian literature, there's an essay written by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I think 73 or 74, upon his expulsion from Moscow. And it's called Live Not By Lies. And I read this paper maybe five times. And it just hit me every every time. There's particularly this one line I paraphrase, which is something like, how dare you call yourself an artist if you're not able to stand by the truth. It's something like that. That's a condensed version of a paragraph. That really, really affected me. And I thought, you know, what kind of, I don't have kids, but what kind of father could I be of this, this apology? Also, I know that no one else cares, but it's not really about them. It's about my own conscience. So for me, I was in this dilemma where I had this apology, but that if I tell the truth, it's going to hurt the band. I could have stayed in the band, stood by the apology, but it would, meant, it would have meant keeping quiet, probably lying to get along. And I, I found that the only way out of the whole situation was to quit the band. And I put out a Medium article, an article on medium.com explaining the, the situation, which if anyone wants to find out more, they can find that article. And for me, I just needed to clear my conscience. What happened after that, I didn't know. That was it. And but before leaving that, I went to the band. I explained uh, my situation, or my predicament rather. There was no great uh, disagreement, I'd say. And so I, after a few days, published the letter. And um, as soon as the article uh, was out and my conscience was cleared, I could sleep again. Right. And, and uh, so, uh, and I've been rebuilding my life since then. How was it made clear to you that you couldn't both put the article out and stay in the band? Was that something you decided for yourself or was it made clear to you by the band's management, by your record label, by your touring agency or maybe by your fellow band members that you could not do both? Well, I I knew how upsetting it would be for the band. When the initial tweet came out, radio stations said they wouldn't play the band. I was dropped from a festival in the UK without notice and I knew that they were very upset by the topic so it was it was a bit of a it was the only way out really right so um it was just clear to you that there would be all these negative consequences for the band exactly yeah and not from one actor but kind of decentralized from the whole industry almost exactly and uh that wasn't fair on them and they didn't seem to disagree so yeah it felt like the only way out are you guys still mates? I wish them very well. Very talented uh, musicians, and I'm sure they'll have great careers. Are you still making music? I am still making music. I'm working on a couple of projects. I found some like-minded artists. Well, actually, I'm not sure we're like-minded, but <laughs> we're like-minded in the sense that uh, we're, we can talk freely, and even when we disagree we're enriched by the experience and so actually which by the way artists needs to be able to speak freely right and by definition if we can't we implode if your drummer is playing a drum line that you don't like you need to be able to tell them that you don't like it you need to be able to speak freely artistically i guess and maybe the politics kind of plays into that as well right (laughs) 
It's a very good point. Yeah, no, absolutely. Are you still playing these sort of traditional music uh, instruments, dobro, banjo, guitar, that kind of stuff, or have you gone in a different direction? Yeah, so I'm I'm doing quite a variety of stuff. I I mean I have DJ'd before, and I I put a techno record out in 2017 called Silk. So I've done quite a variety of things, and I've done a lot of rock music. And at the moment, I'm working on some electronic music. I'm also working on it's kind of weird neoclassical meets hip-hop thing but i don't know how to describe that and then i'm actually in the states right now with an organization called fair foundation against intolerance and racism and we're doing a a bunch of events and i'll be playing i'll be playing some of the songs i wrote for mumford and sons on an acoustic guitar just me singing and uh, we'll see how that goes great i appreciate the segue to your current visit tell me more about your engagement with fear and about your podcast because you know i came across the spectator when i was living in england and became a huge fan of the the arts and book reviews in particular i think are absolutely exceptional but also the political coverage and news is is great so i'm i'm so happy for you that you're engaged with such a i mean i think the spectator is just a treasure i think it's an amazing publication so tell me more about your cooperation with the spectator how it came about and also your cooperation with fear so i wrote a piece for the spectator uh, just after i quit the band so the medium article i described blew up and quite unexpectedly actually because my objective was just to clear my conscience and to explain to get myself out of the mess i couldn't quite believe it i think the medium itself sorry i'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here but the medium article itself was read maybe six or seven hundred thousand times but then it got re we got translated in german into the biggest newspaper in germany newsweek in the u.s daily mail in the uk so i think it might have been read about a million times after wow. which was i couldn't i was like what like in a way it was it made up for the hell that i'd gone through so i was grateful to god in a sense because i think it's in his hands for that and, it, and it's it cleared my my conscience as i said in my name I wrote a follow-up piece writing about that and the response to that because I got I got hundreds, if not thousands, of private messages mm. after that article of people saying... Because I talk a lot about self-censorship and, and I think we've been a period of self-censorship where people don't really say what they're thinking because they're scared of the consequences. And I had so many people from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, even mothers. I had a beauty model <laughs> saying she's... I don't know what she's self-censoring <laughs> in the beauty context. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what she was... <laughs> wanting to say but uh, uh, all walks of life and uh, so I talked about self-censorship with them and, and so I built a relationship with the spectator and then we had this idea well why don't we explore those topics and work out what the taboo topics are obviously Antifa and far left extremism is one of them trans is one of them anti-semitism has been a big one of them in the UK there's a bunch of taboo topics and, and so trying to explore those taboo topics as well as free speech. Trans is a big one. I've done trans in the arts it's killed so many great talented artists have been knocked out by the by the trans debate. I don't know if it's quite the same here, but in the UK, J.K. Rowling's the famous one, uh, author of Harry Potter, getting death threats, people won't work with her because of her perfectly legitimate opinions. And she's regularly besmirched as far right or fascist when she is a completely moderate and other artists like James Dreyfus who's an actor you might remember from Notting Hill who's in Gimme 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 I had him on the show recently talking about how he got cancelled from the Doctor Who I don't even have Doctor Who in America it's an English show it's uh, a very English show very English show <laughs> and uh, very you know established 
decades-long running show in the UK and he got cancelled from that for his supporting J.K. Rowling. Graham Linehan, who was com- very famous comedy writer, wrote F- Father Ted and um, the IT crowd, some of the Alan Partridge stuff. Again, got cancelled for the trans stuff. And there's plenty of artists. Trans is a big one in the UK. So I've been exploring that. So uh, got this podcast and we, we interview people in the creative arts, but we also interview people or I interview people on specific topics. So I recently had Helen Joyce, who I believe has wrote, I mean, I've read quite widely now on the trans thing, and I think her book, Trans, is probably the, if you want a starting point to understand the very complicated trans issue, her book is is the place to start. So we had that, and, it, and she's fantastic. So I, I've been having a great time, to be honest, really enjoying it. And and then why I'm here in America is because there's this organization called FAIR, F-A-I-R, Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is a civil liberties group. Why I particularly liked it is because when we next have a period in the creative industries where there's, let's say, another George Floyd movement, um, God forbid, but sadly, that's the state of the world. We're going to have these issues come up. We need organizations that are not like the BLM organization. BLM, just to remind listeners, were explicitly Marxist, anti-family, anti-capitalist organization. And by the way, the $90 million that they raised in that period, they have spent, they spent $30 million on Wall Street. They spent a bunch on their own property portfolios. And they spent a ton on trans activist charities, quote unquote charities. And so they're not actually doing very much for black lives now. This is a potentially another divisive thing. But now that I'm free to say what I think, I can say these things. But I do care about anti-black racism. I do care about the plight of people suffering and poverty, as well as when it happens to be for racial reasons or not. When people are suffering, we need to help them. And when incidents like George Floyd wake up big people to these such problems. We need real organizations who believe in a bright future and understand those classical liberal tenets to uh, help us channel that energy to a good place. So for me, FAIR hopefully can be that organization. And as well as that, they've helped various people in their own getting cancelled to use which is now a complete cliche so i do a little american accent for you uh we, we help such people get through that situation with legal help so they do a bunch of stuff listen to the Bayern interview um hopefully he has all the answers for you great thank you very much i'm very aware that we are out of time here but we conclude our podcast every time with a question mm-hmm. which is if you had to recommend to listeners a book or a podcast or a film or anything really on the topic of civil debate and civil discourse what would it be um well i recommend your podcast henry this has been a very civil conversation (laughs) thank you very uh, much and i recommend your podcast (laughs) so there you go one hand washes the other there we go (laughs) thank you very (laughs) much (laughs) this has been a lot of fun Thanks very much for joining us. This has really been excellent. Thank you.